The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hi, Dr. Ray. I love your show. Let me show you what it looks like to be a holy person, and maybe you'll want to be holy like me. You just patted yourself on the back. You seem like an honest guy. But you're a psychologist. Do you have some advice? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're my second favorite Italian person. I think you have a way of making people feel relaxed. She needs to feel the consequences of being a jerk. No, I was looking for a deeper answer. Obviously, I'm a failure. Obviously, I'm inept. You are awesome. Keep up the good fight, my friend. Now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. Very nice to have you with me on The Doctor Is In on this Look Back Friday. The story is, an elderly man in Phoenix calls his son in New York. Says, I hate to ruin your day, but I got to tell you, your mother and I are splitting up. 40 years of this misery is enough. The son screams, Pop, what are you talking about? It's like I said, son, I can't I can't take it anymore. We're, we're tired of each other. I'm tired of talking about this. So you can call your sister in Chicago and you can tell her. And he hangs up. Son panics, calls his sister. She explodes. They're not getting divorced if I have anything to do about it. I'll take care of this. She calls Phoenix immediately, screams at the dad. You are not getting divorced. Do not do a single thing till I get there. I am going to call my brother back. We will be there first thing tomorrow. Don't do a thing. Do you hear me? And she hangs up. The dad hangs up his phone. He turns to his wife. Okay, he says, they're coming for Thanksgiving. They're paying their own fares. Now, what do we tell them for Christmas? Yeah, you can be pretty slippery when you get a little older. Nice having you with me. This is Look Back Friday. As I said, where we take previous calls, edited appropriately at the hands of Andrew Kruchek, my producer man, and board operator. I asked him, Andrew, why are you board operator? He said, do you listen to the show? I said, okay, answer taken. And he edits these calls. Every so often he does send me a nice article here, which I'm going to dive into, comment upon. I don't want to just read the article. I want to comment upon it. i got to say something, which is parallel to Look Back Friday, because with these previous calls, we air them in the edited version. And then I, right now, will comment more upon them from any direction, either to explain something, to go off on a tangent, to embellish, or in the rare instance, and this happened I think it was eight years ago now. I said something I wanted to correct. Hope that doesn't happen again. Parents of teens are more concerned about internet addiction than drug use, the study finds. Now, one might say, now let me comment right away quick on this. What are they saying? That the, the internet is worse than being on drugs? No, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is it is far more likely that the children will be enslaved by the Internet than they will be by drugs. According to the results of a survey published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, no rinky-dink outfit, 
on October 26. Parents of kids aged nine. Oh, age nine. See, I'm going to comment right away quick. What the heck is a nine-year-old doing on the Internet? Age nine to 15 years, see Internet use. <sighs> internet use. Age nine. Okay. As a double-edged sword. Oh, that means they must think it's positive there for a nine-year-old. While it fosters a sense of family connectedness, it's also a concern. A concern? Okay, that's a word we used to use when we had kids in meetings with their parents and the school people. We have some concerns. There's a kid who's setting fires due to the potential, the potential for negative consequences. And it's interesting what they list first, such as cyberbullying. Uh, I think the potential for Internet negative consequences are stripping of innocence and morals and sexual confusion. Eh, you don't want to say that, though, right? The results remind us that no conversation, this is the study's authors talking now, about the impact of Internet technologies on our youth is complete without consideration of both the negative and positive impacts and acknowledgement of how experience may differ among families. Uh From a public health perspective, these authors still talking, they underscore the need for greater education and support for parents. What kind of education? Education about cyberbullying or education about stripping your kids' innocence, their morals, misshaping their souls. Dr. Ray, that's pretty extreme, is it? Ah, really? Go ahead. Let your 11-year-old have unfettered Internet access and watch what happens. As many parents have concerns, there's the concern word again, and are unsure how to promote or restore healthy Internet use. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Promote or restore healthy Internet use for a 9-year-old? For an 11-year-old? So, let me see if I understand this. We're going to instruct them. We're going to talk with them about the potential downsides, one might even say dangers, of roaming around the Internet and... Expect them to say, oh, gosh, I didn't realize that, mother. Well, of course, those are places I will avoid. Those are things I will not do. Are you kidding me? To throw back to an old adage, picture is worth a thousand words, and the Internet is unlimited pictures and attractions, along with words, and all we parents have is words. Researchers conducted an online survey of 1,000 parents of U.S. youth between 9 and 15 to understand their perceptions and concerns. Okay. Potential mental health problems. As online activities increased during the COVID-19 pandemic, so did the potential for negative consequences of Internet use among youth. Well, but what's that saying is they just spent more time there. So as you spend more time there, 
you're going to run into, for example, it's been associated with mental health problems, higher rates of alcohol dependence, depression, anxiety, and insomnia. Well, of course it does. It's a confusing place. At the very least, it's a confusing place. At the very worst, it's a hideously seductive place. And if you think you can battle it by instructing them on how to use it appropriately, oh, you may be 2 or 3% effective. Too much time on the Internet has also been linked to difficulty socializing with peers. Yeah, Jean Twenge has done a whole bunch of studies on this. And what she has found is that the more kids are on the Internet supposedly interacting with their peers, the less face-to-face socializing they do. You think that's good? Okay, then leave them on the Internet. They are having less healthy conversations, more uncomfortable in social settings, less showing of empathy. And these have been supported by previous studies. Some critics, wonder who these critics are, point out that these outcomes cannot be generalized because past research were based on small samples with the potential for selection bias. Well, this is a this is a sample of a thousand parents. About one third in the of the parents who participated in the study reported concerns about addiction. That word is stretched. Basically, it's now come to mean anything that we are very, very, very enmeshed in. It doesn't have to be a physiological thing per se, like a drug or nicotine. It can be anything that is so attractive to us that it actually enslaves us in our desires. Uh, shares of parents expressed concerns about one of these types of addictions in their kids, which was Internet and substances, while the other third didn't have any worries at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's because the kids are 9 to 15, and it hasn't happened yet. You know, you got a 12-year-old boy who's not really all that into the Internet and social social media, and girls are much more so than boys. It hasn't happened yet. What happens when he's 17? And he's been all over it, and he's seen all kinds of pornography. A guy named Dr. Zachary Ginder, clinical psychologist, was not involved in the study, but commented on the findings. This awareness is likely a good thing, but more research is needed before concluding these concerns are definitely warranted. Really? Definitely warranted? In other words... Okay, well then, maybe we'll just be taking a chance. Not definite, not going to happen necessarily, but it could happen. But if we don't, have, we don't have proof that it happens with everybody. I always love stuff like this. Okay, so let's say it only happens twenty-seven percent of the time. Is that an odd you want to take with your kid? Is that a percentage you want to risk with your kid? Ooh. Or that certain online risks outweigh others. Well, what do you have to know about online risk outweighing others? If they're risk, they're risks. Some of them may not be as serious, may not be pornographic, or it might not be heading into all kinds of places you wouldn't want your kid to walk down the street experiencing. Quote, The finding that parents expressed greater concern about Internet addiction Compared to substance addiction, well, that's true because pretty much all these 9- to 15-year-olds 
are onto the internet, uh, probably a very, very small percentage of them are using or experimenting with uh, a range of chemicals. Highlights the growing apprehension about problematic internet use, internet use among the young. So, well, it's good. It's the more people who recognize this. See, it takes a while for society to adjust to the effect of unbridled technology. Technology in and of itself isn't bad. I mean, look, I have to conduct most of my business via the cell phone, the Internet, and the computer. I got to. But I'm old enough to avoid pornography. I'm old enough to avoid online exploring of relationships. Hopefully I'm moral enough. And my wife would shoot me in the head if I did. So there's a practical component there. But... Beyond that, we're, talk, we're talking kids. Everybody goes, well, the, the brain isn't really developed. The frontal cortex part of the brain isn't really developed. Really, most people till age 25. Okay, so let's put a technological machine gun in the hand of an 11-year-old and say, well, we're not really sure if he'll shoot anybody with it. I mean, it's kind of just aiming all over the place, and it could hit something, but, you know, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, that's what we're saying. Ah. <sighs> The potential for quote-unquote addiction was most evident in social media and video gaming. Study goes on to say social media can be a breeding ground for anxiety, feelings of isolation, low self-esteem, which are also common traits among those with substance abuse problems. Mark Siegel, clinical professor of medicine, says, in addition... Social media can be used by bad actors, tell me about it, to lure kids and teens into using drugs. Study also reminded that problematic Internet usage patterns are correlated with bad parenting. They didn't say bad parenting. They said negative parenting. I said bad parenting. I.e. inconsistent discipline or poor supervision. Okay. This is fascinating. I know I'm getting past my my opening monologue time. This is fascinating. The biggest limitation, according to, I guess, the study's author here, is that the study only included the parents' perspectives, not the children's. Oh, okay. So we're going to ask a 12-year-old. So what do you think? Think the Internet's good for you or bad for you? You could get some mature 12-year-old saying, yeah, it's a risky place. I know it's not too great. But the majority of them are going to get, well, it's great. Are you kidding me? I talk to my friends all the time. I can go all different places. I'll see everything's. The researcher said, I don't buy this for a second. More can be learned by speaking directly to the adolescents on the issue. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, well. So it goes to show you, even when, even when the research is saying, okay, we better take a good hard look at this, there's that part of it that says, well, yeah, I mean, a good hard look at it, but, but you know, it, it's, it's, it doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen with all kids. It doesn't happen with all parents. Of course. 
Very few things are 100% pervasive. The question is, parent, what percentage risks do you want to take? I'm Dr. Ray. We'll return after these messages. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. He was a pope, a saint, and a doctor of the church. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. Pope St. Gregory I the Great is one of only four popes honored as the Great. Among his many achievements was sending missionaries across northern Europe, especially St. Augustine of Canterbury, who brought Christ to the people of England. In a pun, Pope Gregory called the English people angels. He died in 604. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Nice to have you with me, Dr. Ray Garendi program. Doctor is in. Eat person Friday. Better go quickly to uh, Isaiah from Nebraska. What do you think is motivating him to do this? Well, I, I haven't really thought about his motivation that much. It's not like he's trying to be mean. It's more like he's trying to keep me in check, I think. Why? He thinks you brag? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, I do it a lot as a joke. Like, I shift blame all as a joke. Like, we played Dungeons & Dragons, and we got into a bar fight once. And I was like, it's not my fault. This guy threw a shot glass at my head. And then he's like, yeah, but you're the one who told me. There's backstory to this, but you're the one who drove him to do that. And then, so he does that kind of thing. So where if I, and that's a joke. I normally don't, you know, blame everyone else around me for. This guy jealous of you? might be i don't know for sure is he a good friend he's not the he's not a best friend we mainly just play games together he's not like i said my best friend yeah he i think so he invited me over to play dungeons and dragons with him that's how i got started in it mm. and well, you just he's just a gaming buddy that's all he is yes gaming buddy 
So what's it matter what he says? Not much. I like him, and I wish we could be better friends, but we live an hour away. Yeah, distance distance is a factor in forming friendships, that's for sure. Uh, two things here. You have to ask yourself, is anything he's saying true? To the best of your ability now, it's hard to be objective about ourselves. Our natural bent is to be subjective. Is anything he's saying true? Okay. Are you a little full of yourself, and you're not joking around? On the other hand, if you say to yourself, man, I'm just teasing, and he just seems, he just seems to be intent on finding ways to criticize me and it's getting old now is it getting old yeah i'm getting kind of tired of it because okay. a lot well you, you don't have to stay friends with him there's nothing nothing written <laughs> in christian teaching that says when you don't relate well to someone you have to continue to have a relationship with them that's why we pick friends, because we are comfortable around them, or at ease around them, or we share things together. We like their personality. But you got folks that are hard to get along with, and they're not people that you need to get along with, like family. Why, why would you? All right. I mean, that, that's my thought on that. I'm not going to dump a bunch of energy into a, an acquaintance that I have to wonder if and when he's going to say something snotty. All right. That's where I'm at. Or the other thing is, the other way you could do this is you could say, well, I like, I like to play these games with him, but that's about as far as it goes. Anything else he says is going to go in one ear and out the other because I don't even care what he says. He's, he's, he's obviously driven to somehow put me in my place as he sees it. And... Uh, I could care less. Or I is it I could care less? I couldn't care less. Sorry about that. Couple ways to look at it, my friend. Guys tend to form friendships more around activities. In this case, Isaiah has this guy, and I wouldn't even call him a friend, is they just play games together. Distance games, whatever. So that's the main course of the friendship. That's it. They don't talk feelings. They don't talk about religion. They don't talk about personal matters. Women are more likely to do that than guys are. comes more naturally to the ladies than it does to us. So, so given that, all he really knows about this guy is this gaming thing and the fact that he snipes at him. That's all he knows. He doesn't know much, he doesn't know much else. If I were to say even, Isaiah, what religion is he? I don't know. Well, what's his family life like? Uh, he never talks about it. So th there's no real personal bond here that you have to navigate and straighten out. It's not there. So it doesn't even exist. Which brings up a third point. When I said play the game and ignore the snipes, you can do that when you don't care what somebody thinks. Why would you be upset that this guy, that apparently you want to play these games with or against however you do it you want to do it you think that's reasonable enough that's value enough to spend time around the guy as long as it's relatively circumcised cir <laughs> little freudian slip there circumscribed around the game but other than that this guy's just firing off shots 
Well, you always think you're better than everybody else anyway. Where's this coming from? So at some point, the scale's going to tip. The positives of playing these games with him are going to be outweighed by the negatives that come out of his mouth. Once you weigh it, you make a decision. But one thing I've learned a lot about, when people are not in my life, when they don't know me, and they are critical about something, uh, they get a lot less credibility because they don't really enter into my life all that much. with Teresa Tomio. So when you see these different media outlets working directly in conjunction or conclusion with the government to suppress stories, what does that say to us about the reliability or lack thereof of the secular media? And then this is combined with a report that came out, a survey that was done on media executives. They interviewed 75 media leaders around the country, and they're saying we're done with objectivity. Well, that's not exactly a newsflash. But the fact that they're claiming that objectivity is just no longer necessary and we are elitists, we know better, and this is what we're going to do, is frightening. And this is one of the reasons that we stress the importance of having outlets such as The Register and EW10 News Nightly and The World Over and Catholic News Agency and EW10 News In-Depth. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. What are the three parables Jesus tells about prayer in St. Luke's Gospel? The first is what the Catechism calls the importunate friend. This is the friend who wakes a pal at midnight in order to borrow three loaves of bread to feed a visitor. The second parable the Catechism labels the importunate widow, who persistently pleads for her rights from a reluctant judge till the wearied judge rules in her favor. This parable illustrates the need to pray always and with the patience of faith. Jesus closes this parable with the poignant question, When the Son of Man comes, will he find any faith on the earth? The third parable centers on the Pharisee and the tax collector, commending the tax collector for his humility because he asked God to be merciful to me, a sinner, a prayer which the church adopts as its own. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Women, wives, put the radio under your husband's pillow, and you go to the radio archives at Ave Maria Radio Communications while he's asleep. We've got studies that need to be replicated, but the number of yes-dears will rise approximately 39%, which is pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I don't know how long you have to put it under his pillow. At least the show's worth, anyway. This is Dr. Ray. I appreciate the company here. Monday through Friday, 1 o'clock Eastern Time. My website's drray.com, D-R-R-A-Y.com. All 17 books are there on subjects such as discipline, parenthood, marriage, faith, 
emotions, standing strong in the faith, personal relations. I'm running out of topics to write about, running out of topics, but they're all there. And the Facebook page, of course, is there. Um, and uh, also Instagram. My son is uh, starting to run a little Instagram thing where we're given 30-second, 35-second, 45-second little little pieces of hopefully helpful direction, uh, trying to counter all the ways that the shrink types have undercut parents' confidence and authority and peace of mind and strength of will and resolve, made parents a nervous wreck with all of our theories and notions and worries that if you miscalculate, that kid's going to be on an afternoon talk show 12 years from now talking about you and the time you left him on the pot four minutes too long. All righty, back to a call. Uh, Ed from Ohio has the question, is my, is my wife codependent? How do you define codependency, and, and what can a person do about that if a family member is thought to be codependent in a bad situation? Well, the way you define codependency is the way you define most traits. They are fuzzy. Typically, if you want to summarize it, common theme is that for whatever the reason the person feeds into the other person's behavior and they get some benefit from it. That said, Ed, I would advise you just to get rid of that label because that's all it is. It's a label. It's not a cause. You can't say, my daughter does this because she's codependent. Well, that doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't say anything at all. Your daughter does it for much more specific reasons. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, does she even recognize that she's feeding into some of this stuff? I would say so, Doc, because she is a therapist. Oh, well then would she deny that she's codependent? She said, I'm not, Dad. I know more than you do. I, I, would, I, I could hear her saying that for sure. So she didn't want to hear it? Absolutely 100% correct, and I've never broached the subject because uh, you'll just be kind of canceled out. Oh. Well, you've done a good thing. You have read the situation, you've picked up the clues, and you've said, if I approach this, I'm about 100% sure what it's going to do. One, it will be denied, and two, it'll probably hurt our relationship. Am I wrong on that? I got my percentages wrong? You are 100% accurate. Like hearing that? like hearing that sometimes i strive for 110 percent um but uh well you're 110 doc on this one let me tell you yeah your best move ed and i know people sometimes get tired of me saying this best move is not say anything we, okay. we we tend to think that there is a reasonable way to approach everyone in every situation and if we just found the right words, the right logic, the right empathy, the right you message, the right win-win scenario, we'd get through to them. The problem is people don't necessarily live by reason. They live by self-interest. They live by emotion. They live by willfulness. So if your daughter basically says, I don't, I don't buy a dad, don't even bring it up. It's not true. You don't know what I'm dealing with. 
I know what I'm dealing with, Dad. I know people better than you do. I'm a therapist. Your best is to kind of say, okay, okay, all right. If she's going to come to these conclusions, she's going to have to come to them on her own. Or, or here's the other thing, Ed. She might not be codependent. You might just think she is. I mean, it, yeah, go ahead. It may be, Doc. I have no clue, but I thank you so much for the info. You're welcome, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks for the call. He said an interesting thing. He said he's not even brought this whole topic up. Because if he did, he'd be canceled out. Which tells me that he's said things in the past uh, as fatherly guidance, as observations, as suggestions, even as opinions. And they may or may not been well-received. So, at the best, he is unsure how something like this will be accepted. So he hasn't done it, and he's smart. The point to be made here is that in a lot of relationships that are fraying, that are becoming more uneasy, there was a lot of initial cues given off that your opinion wasn't wanted or your suggestion wasn't wanted or your advice wasn't wanted or your observation wasn't wanted. It was there. Maybe it was subtle. Maybe it was just kind of a, a rolling of the eyes or, or ignoring it. No response. No response oftentimes means I don't want to hear it. Or it was overt. I don't need to hear that. I know what I'm doing. Unfortunately, we don't take that initially as, oh, I better be real careful here. I think I'm helping. It's not being heard that way. We continue to do some of the same things until, and we've had this on this program many times, and I have it in therapy, where someone says, I, I said something, and I didn't think it, I didn't think it was all that bad and they exploded they erupted all out of proportion and i said well it probably wasn't out of proportion because there was a build-up and the build-up was coming to a point of nuclear vision it was reaching the explosive point the flashpoint, and it just took that remark. Even though you didn't mean it that way, or even though you thought it was a benign remark, don't you think he needs a code? It's kind of cold out there. Ba-boom! Why? Because don't tell me how to raise my kid like you've been telling me all these years. So be sensitive quicker to the indications that what you're saying is not being well received. All too often, we just kind of ignore the reaction and do the same thing next time around.
The EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me, our EWTN Family Prayer. Today we pray for those who have diabetes. Almighty God, we worship you, our Father. And we pray this day for those who suffer with diabetes. Look upon your children with this illness and grant them relief. Give them patience and the grace of perseverance in taking care of their health. Show them the way to physical and spiritual well-being. Let their cry come to your ears and bring them healing in mind and body and soul. We ask this in the holy name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. We have something that stands in utter contrast to the lies of this world. It's called the Word of God. The Word of God is what demolishes all that sets itself up as an opponent to the good, the true, and the beautiful. All that sets itself up as an opponent to Christ Jesus. The Word of God is given to us so that we have something to hold on to that's true in all circumstances. We always have a place where we can wash ourselves in the regenerating waters of Scripture. We have a place to retreat to, where we can cling to what is true. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, of the joint and the marrow, and it's a judge and critic of the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Cresta in the Afternoon, weekdays at 4 Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's the year 2023. The Lord comes to Noah, who's now living in the U.S., said, once again, the earth has become wicked. Build another ark. Save two of every living thing. He gave Noah the blueprints, saying, look, you have six months. I will start the rain in that time for 40 days and 40 nights. Six months later, the Lord looks down, saw Noah weeping in his yard. No ark. Noah! I'm about to start the rain. Where is the ark? Forgive me, Lord, but things have changed. I needed a building permit. I've been arguing with the inspector about the need for a sprinkler system. My neighbors claim I'm violating neighborhood zoning laws by trying to build the ark in my yard and exceeding the height limits. We had to go to the developmental a development appeal board for a decision. Then the Department of Transportation demanded a bond to be posted for future costs of moving power lines and other overhead obstructions to clear the passage for the ark's move to the sea. I argued that the sea would be coming to us, but they didn't believe that. Getting the wood was another problem. There's a ban on cutting local trees in order to save the spotted owl. I tried to convince the environmentalists that I needed the wood to save the owl. No go. When I started gathering the animals, I got sued by an animal rights group. They insisted I was confining wild animals against their will. They argued the accommodation was too restrictive, and it was cruel and inhumane to put so many animals in such a confined space. Then, 
The EPA ruled I couldn't build the ark until they'd conducted an environmental impact study on your proposed flood. I'm still trying to resolve a complaint with the Human Rights Commission about how many and how much diversity I'm supposed to hire for my building crew. The trades unions say I can't use my sons. They insist I have to hire only union workers with ARC building experience. Make matters worse, the IRS seized all my assets, claiming I'm trying to leave the country illegally with endangered species. So forgive me, Lord, but it would take at least 10 years for me to finish this ARC. <laughs> Sent to me by a dear supporter of Ave Maria Radio who passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 93. Tim from North Dakota is asking about chemically based depression. With a chemical or a hereditary depression, why does it respond so to outside stimuli? And, you know, you talk about deciding to be happy. And most of the time, I do really good. I mean, I've been on antidepressants for a long time, and they really help. But every once in a while, something comes along, and it just becomes a, it, much more of a struggle. Um, went through something a year ago, and it just, the, the smallest things seem to just kind of, I don't know, piggyback on that. So how, my question is, how does, uh, how, how does the chemical depression, the stuff that you can treat with drugs, how does that, why does that respond so, or how does that relate to the things that, you know, just generically make people unhappy that they can decide to ignore? Tim, there has been a movement afoot, perhaps a feat, that depression is an illness that's the medical model it's an illness in fact only a small percentage of depressions are biochemical if you've seen a biochemical depression man you recognize it the majority of depressions are what you would call life depressions reactive depressions thinking depressions they used to have an old differentiation endogenous which is what you're referring to or exogenous okay or reactive so begin with that if a depression has a chemical base and then we're not we're not anywhere near far enough in our chemical abilities to assess these things then we can say oh yeah yeah Tim's got a Tim's got a chemical depression here's over here right over there and those those chemicals and that that whole intricate part of the brain right there not unless there's something seriously wrong. But much of the time, it's too subtle. So, given that, when you say, well, why is it that it seems to be affected so much by events? That's because two things. One, even if you are chemically depressed, you still have to live life and interpret events. So, whatever happens to you can make worse or make better your mood that that's common there is a I, I remember reading a meta-analysis you know what a meta-analysis is Tim no but I would guess that it refers to an over overview yes very good they they took a look at just a boatload of studies regarding medication for depression 
they came to this conclusion. It's a little bit scary, but I think it reflects the fact that much that is called chemical is not chemical. It is life-based. And you kind of alluded to that. You said, you know, certain things can bring me down. All right? It isn't the things that bring you down, Tim. It's the way you look at those things that are bringing you down. So given that, they analyzed these studies. They concluded this. For every 10 people over and above placebo, how well does medication work for depression? Out of 10, how many? Oh, based on my experience, I would say probably about a half. One. Well, I was headed the right direction. <laughs> well, the placebo effect, which means I expect to get better because I'm being treated, or I expect to get better because I, I feel differently on this medication, therefore it must be working, is anywhere between 40 and 50% in medication for depression. So, in fact, people do get better, but it may not be because of their medication. But there is a, a very small percentage of people who, who really respond well to the medication. And of those people, it's more than likely there's something chemically a little out of whack up there. And it's so intricate that we can't really figure it out. I remember there's a lot of simple theories on neurochemically. You know, the dopamine hypothesis, you don't have enough dopamine at the various dendrite and axon sites. So, therefore, but all, all of that to be said, I just said that to sound smart, by the way. All of that means this. You are right. Even when you're on your meds, when things happen to you, you have to interpret them. You've got to think about them in some way or another. And when you do that, if you think about them in a way that makes you more depressed, you're going to get more depressed. If you think about them in a way that helps you look at them reasonably, logically, rationally, you could neutralize their effect. If I were to summarize all of that long-winded response on my part, I would say that even with a biochemically-based depression, there is a mix. The biochemically-based depression doesn't affect completely and totally every aspect of your existence. You have to navigate life and what it presents. So therefore, the, the upheaval, the regression, the aberration in your chemicals up there, however that manifests itself, is one aspect. And it certainly could cast a significant pall over life. But at the same time, even within that dark cloud that permeates your life, there are events. Someone dies. You lose a friendship. You constrict your existence. That's a big one. If the depression makes you very, very low energy and you stop doing things that at one time gave you joy, now you've eliminated those from your life. So the depression seems even more intense, but it isn't all because of the biochemical upheaval. It's now in part because you've stopped doing things 
that were a counterbalance to feeling bad. You don't exercise anymore. You don't go play cards with your friends anymore. You stop going to church. You you more or less constricted your existence because your mood was heavy. And in constricting your existence, you've now added to the seriousness of the mood because I've eliminated much in my life that at one time or would even now give me some contentment. So there's a complex interplay between the chemical basis for the depression and the effect of the depression on living life. I'm Dr. Ray. We'll return after these messages. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. He always starts with the good things. You know, the seven letters to the churches and the book of Revelation is a great way to write letters to other people, by the way, or to have conversations with other people. You start with what's going well. You do this, this, and this really well. I love it. Thank you. Here's what you're lacking. And I think for many of us as men, what the Lord's communicating at that second part of the letter or the second part of the conversation is here's what we're lacking. You don't ever spend enough time with me. You have no idea what I'm trying to offer you in the gift of my friendship. Or if you do, you don't make time for it. And if you would but come to me, I would change your life like that. But you don't come. Not with the regularity that I want you to come. Not with the ardor and the fervor and the passion that I want you to come. I have a hunch, more than a hunch, that's what he says to me. And I got a hunch that's what he would say to many of us. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. One thing Andrew Kruchek, my producer man, does for me is he puts the time code on the previous look-back call. And so the one sitting up there now that I was thinking of next is a 5 minute and 19 second. Just doing some quick math, that would take us, well, approximately a minute past the end of the show. So I don't want to cut me off for a minute. I want to go to C.S. Lewis. Now this was written in 1950. Think about this, 1950, 73 years ago. It may be asked... Whether now, when only 
a minority of Englishmen regard the Bible as a sacred book. So what he's saying is that England at that time, in 1950, was a post-Christian culture. We may anticipate an increase of its literary influence. All right? If it's not a sacred book, then it's a literary composition, and uh, we'll look at it as a literary composition. He says, I think it might be if it continued to be widely read. But that's not very likely. Our age, indeed, has coined the expression, the Bible as literature, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a nice way of invalidating the Bible. It's just literature. It's not really God's way of trying to communicate with us. It's just like, yeah, take a look at it, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Coined over a long time, couple millennia, you know, just sort of people sort of wrestling with what's it all about, Alfie. And if you want to understand some ancient cultures, eh, you look at the way they did things and the way they talk about things. That's what the Bible's all about to some people. It's a bunch of stories. Okay. C.S. Lewis says this, But I cannot help suspecting that those who read the Bible as literature do not read the Bible. So what's he saying? He's saying, you're not reading what you're reading? No. What he's saying is, if you come to the Bible with a preconceived notion that it's just literature, it doesn't have a sacred message. It's not any way God's Word to help us live life better and to tell us about Him and His plans for us. It's not that. Then you're not really reading the depth of the Bible. This became so obvious to me when I started looking into an awful lot of the long-term Catholic understanding of the Gospels. And much of the, the underlying significance of why the gospel writers said what they said. I couldn't believe it. I, there's no way I'd know that. I just read this like a, a Western person reading a novel. That's all I do. And then he did this, and then he did that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Small example. Just just one tiny example. I went a little bit here. When our Lord calmed the storm. The Sea of Galilee was prone to these inexplicable flash storms coming up from nowhere. And one of the understandings at that time is that the demons were roiling the waters. So that when he calmed the sea, he didn't just show command over nature. He showed command over the spiritual realm. Would you know that? If you just kind of read it as a novel, the Bible as literature? No, there's some deep, deep messages on what the Bible says. And if you just read it as literature, you're just going to skim on top of those waves. You'll never head down into that ocean. Thank you so much for joining me here on The Doctor Is In. I appreciate it. Look back Friday coming to a close. No longer looking back, but looking ahead to Monday, where I pray we will meet again. Thank you so much for joining me. Walk with God, or, or at the very least, seek Him in your walk. If He knows you're seeking Him, He'll show you Himself. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook. 
The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.